Hi listeners, today's book episode features an excerpt from Dr. Patricia Wright's book, For the Love of Lemurs, published by Lantern Publishing and Media. The excerpt will be followed by our previous interview with her from episode 47. You can find links to buy the ebook or print version in the show notes. In the 1700s and 1800s, it was common for naturalists to discover new species. They would take out their shotguns, pull the trigger, and haul the corpse back to the respective countries to be properly examined and pronounced the first of its kind. To find a new species in 1986, however, was much rarer. Nonetheless, I would still be required by the International Code of Zoological Nomenclature, which has jurisdiction over naming species, to bring back a dead body of the animal in question. That meant a representative individual or a voucher specimen had to be sacrificed to science. To describe a new species, to go down on record as being the person who discovered a new plant or animal would be a thrill and a great honor. And describe a new species of primate would be an especial distinction. But I was not going to kill a lemur to do it. Instead, I hope that advances in genetics would enable the scientific community to prove my description of a new species by comparing the DNA in blood samples from the three kinds of bamboo lemurs. The eastern lesser bamboo lemur, the golden bamboo lemur, and the greater bamboo lemur. Of course, in order to draw the blood necessary to establish the new species, we need to to capture the animals. The second problem we faced was finding out why these three species of bamboo lemur were living together in one forest. According to scientific experts like Ernst Meyer and G. Evelyn Hutchinson, species evolved through a long process based on ecology. Closely related species are differentiated by body size, diet, or lifestyle, usually having to do with reproduction. So what about our bamboo feeders? How could these three species live together in one's forest, eating the same thing, without competition driving any of them extinct? The third problem was the race with Bernard Meyer. After my team and I returned to the United States, Bernard stayed on in Ranamafan for another year in his house, built in the rainforest. Professor Rompler and a team of French scientists would be arriving soon to capture the animals and conduct their own certification of the golden bamboo lemur. Our competition to be the first to announce a new species had to hit the fast track. The good news was that National Geographic awarded a grant to me and my colleague Ken Glander from the Duke Primate Center to study nit partitioning in the Ranamafan bamboo lemurs. At the age of 20, Ken had learned to fire a gun in the Air Force in Texas. Now a professor at Duke University, he was still a sharpshooter who could hit a monkey 100 feet up in the trees. Ken had begun his capture career on holler monkeys, one of the most lethargic of our primate relatives. A pioneer of primate marksmanship, he'd already captured hundreds of monkeys, and to have him on our team was a coup. Tall and fit, Ken sported a perfectly waxed mustache that curled upward, which made him look like an explorer straight out of a Victorian melodrama. In May 1987, about a year after I'd first set out to find Happily Mercimus, Ken and I returned to Ranmafan with my old team. 
David Myers, Deborah Overdorf, and Patrick Daniels. This time, though, we only had two weeks to capture each of the three species of bamboo lemurs and take DNA samples. As before, the lemurs were difficult to find, although we kept on coming across traces of their presence, such as little bits of bamboo they dropped behind as they munched their way through the forest. Sometimes we found nibbled petioles, the part of the bamboo where the leaf met the stalk. Other times we discovered chewed husks from the large, torpedo-like shoots that come out of the ground, or tall, woody stalks ripped into shreds. The bamboo lemurs had left their trash behind, but they themselves were nowhere to be seen. The only person who was excited about the bamboo was Ken's old friend from graduate school, who was accompanying us on this trip. Dave Siegler was a botanist from the University of Illinois and intrigued by phytochemistry. The guides called him Dave Bamboo to differentiate him from Dave Myers, whom they called Dave Guitar. Dave Bamboo wasn't at all inclined to climb up and down the steep hills. Instead, he sat around the campfire, fiddling with little glass vials. Meanwhile, Dave Guitar, Deborah, and I collected the bits of bamboo which Dave Bamboo would chop up, scrape into his vials, and test for proteins, carbohydrates, and poisons. After we'd been at Ranmafan for a week, we returned to camp once again without success to find Dave Bamboo sitting by the fire with our old guide, Loray. I hadn't seen Loray since that day Emil had confessed that they were going to work for Bernard. Loray, it's good to see you. I eagerly shook his hand. Loray's grin was broad, and I could tell as he shook my hand that he was glad to see me, too. Manuna, Inovavo, how are you? What's new, he said. Shimishi, no news. There was a reassuring tradition in the greeting. Would you like something to drink, Loray? Some hot chocolate? I knew that was his favorite. As I continued going through the motions of hospitality, my mind was racing. Why was Loray here? Why had he come back? We hadn't heard anything about Bernard and his team for months. After the cup of hot chocolate was drunk and the conversation about the weather wrung dry, Loray asked if he could speak to me in private. This was the Malagasy custom. It was in these private discussions that deep confidences were revealed, revealed about sick children, dead parents, desperate needs for cash, and serious disputes with spouses. Loray and I walked into the forest together for about ten minutes, and then we stopped. I quit my job with Bernard this morning, Loray told me, his eyes on the ground. I cannot work with him anymore. He's a crazy man. I was surprised that shy Loray was speaking so much, but I could see from the tension on his face that somehow he had felt insulted by Bernard. Loray looked up at me with earnest and pleading eyes. I want to work with you. We have missed you very much, Loray. Of course, we would be honored to have you back with our team. I smiled my warmest welcome. What about Emil? Emil is angry, too. But you know Emil. He will stay with Bernard. Things were suddenly looking better with Loray back on our team. I told him why we were trying to catch the lemurs. Loray nodded. We need more people. Tomorrow, I'll bring my friends. With them, we will find the animals. The next morning, Loray arrived with his cousin, George Rakutanarina, his friend Pierre Talata, and Pierre's brother, Albert Talil. Once the introductions were made, I explained the plan to capture lemurs by shooting them with anesthetic darts. 
When the lemurs fell from the trees, our guides needed to be under them with nets so that the animals wouldn't be hurt. We put collars on the animals so we could tell them apart. As I looked at the faces of our Malagasy guides, I realized this was like talking about ice cream or snow, something totally beyond their experience. But they nodded, trusting us. Our new team divided and set out to scour the forest systematically. In mid-morning, Leray appeared back at camp to report that he discovered a group of four lemurs with black fur and white patches on their backs. By this description, I could tell they were Propithecus edwardsi, or the milled Edward Shafaka. Shafakas are a kind of medium-sized lemur with long, silky hair and a sidewise jumping gait where they occasionally move on the ground. They were also endangered and had never been studied before, so this find provided a good opportunity to obtain some data about them. Ken was already loading up the gun, and Larray grabbed his bag of darts. I took the net, which was actually a hammock, and we moved quickly through the forest. Up ahead, in the trees, about 30 feet high, I could see the Shafakas grooming each other, unconcerned about us being directly below them. Ken raised the gun to his shoulder and fired. My heart jumped. The Shafakas looked down, and Larray ran with the net. A Shafaka landed safely, and I breathed a sigh of relief. A second shot rang out, then a third and a fourth. Ken hit each Shafaka perfectly in the middle of the thigh. Within ten minutes, the four Shafakas were anesthetized and lying like sleeping beauties on the ground. Back at camp, we laid the animals on a blue tarpaulin. At one end of the tarp was equipment, calipers, needles and tubes, nylon collars, and a scale. First, Ken gently laid a stethoscope on the chest of the first Shafaka, a female, to take the heartbeat. Sixty beats a minute, he said. I wrote this down on a data sheet. Ken measured the Shafaka from where the crown began to the base of the tail, the circumference of each bicep and thigh, and the length of the thumb and the big toe. He took tooth impressions using bellows to blow dry the teeth before applying the green impression material. In three minutes, we had an exact replica of the bottom teeth all in a row. The six bottom front teeth protruded at a 60-degree angle in what was called a tooth comb, which is why lemurs were so fluffy and clean. They used their built-in comb to groom each other. By measuring the tooth wear, we'd be able to tell the ages of the individuals. Kent then carefully punctured the femoral vein of the Shavaka and drew blood into vials. This blood, the first taken from the species of lemur, would tell us how the animals were related as well as give us indicators of this animal's health. The vials contained a special preservative, so we didn't need to keep the blood frozen or on ice, a great medical advancement, especially in the tropical forest. The collar came next. Ken measured the circumference of the Shafaka's neck and cut a blue nylon strip to the exact size. He used a small machine to clamp the ends of the collar with metal grommets like snaps. The collar needed to be loose, but not loose enough to slip over the head. I was dubious about the collars. Ken had used them on many species of monkey, but this was the first time on a lemur. Would the Shafaka try to get her collar off? Would another Shafaka chew on her collar? 
Would she be shunned by the other Shafakas? The first Shafaka was gently eased into a gunny sack, and Lorraine attached the spring scale. It's 5.8 kilos. I read out about 13 pounds. Finally came the hardest part. Someone had to cradle the Shafaka as she came out of the anesthesia. She needed to be constantly watched and given water as she regained consciousness. Ken offered the Shafaka to me, and I held her like a newborn baby. She's about the size of a month-old human with plush black hair. As her amber eyes slowly opened, I turned so that the sun wouldn't hurt her eyes. With her pink tongue, she licked water I offered her with a syringe. She was thirsty. As she became more alert, she didn't try to bite, but looked around at all of us as if she couldn't believe what she was seeing. In another half hour, she was squirming, and I couldn't control her powerful legs. We need to put her into a sack to fully recover, Ken said. Then we'll release her and the others back where we caught them. We took four large sacks with a shafaka in each into the forest. I peeled back the mouth of the sack, holding mine. The shafaka popped her head, black head out and peered around. Her blue collar didn't seem to be bothering her. Then she took one big acrobatic jump into the nearest tree, the others following her. We just accomplished our first successful lemur capture and released. Now, if we could only find some bamboo lemurs. Sometimes all you need in research is momentum. About a week later, Lorraine and I came across two golden bamboo lemurs about 15 feet from the ground. We both froze where we stood so as not to disturb them. Fortunately, the lemurs were unaware of us, intent instead on a bamboo shoot with a diameter of about half the size of their heads. One lemur jumped down on the ground and began to gnaw the shoot as if it were a huge piece of asparagus. She chewed through the spiny, tough covering to reach the soft, tightly packed layers and tender white inside. It took about 20 minutes before she could break the shoot off from the stalk and carrying it in her hands, she used her strong legs to spring into a tree. The other lemur, probably her son, came over to share the shoot, which was as long as they were. My leg was falling asleep and I couldn't hold still any longer. My little movement alerted the lemurs and they dropped the last bit of shoot and disappeared. I picked up the remaining piece and smelled it. It had the aroma of fresh almonds or marzipan candy. I understood why the lemurs were so enthusiastic about the shoots. I almost wanted to taste it myself, but I took uh, the bit back to Dave Bamboo's chemistry lab at the campfire. Dave started to do his usual analysis. All of a sudden, he exclaimed, Holy moly, look at this! He held up one of his glass vials. Inside, I could see little strips of dark blue paper. Do you know what this is? It's bamboo, Patrick said dryly. Your vials are always filled with chop-up bits of bamboo. Dave ignored Patrick and held up another vial. Just to show you the difference, look at this strip of paper. This vial also had bamboo bits in it, but the paper was totally white. Most of the bamboo samples don't react with the paper strips. It's only the young shoots, which are full of cyanide. They're so lethal that if you, and he pointed at Patrick, were to eat a plate of these bamboo bits, you'd be deader than a doornail. 
But somehow, the golden bamboo lemur eats these shoots every day, all day long, I added. I had never seen another kind of lemur eating those shoots. Perhaps this is one aspect of niche partitioning. The greater bamboo lemur had teeth like a can opener that could rip the stalks to shreds to get the, the pith inside. The lesser bamboo lemur didn't have those teeth, so he just ate the petioles, tiny stems of the leaves of the bamboo. The golden bamboo lemur must have developed special digestive capacities to eat the part of the bamboo that the others couldn't. Each of the species had evolved special adaptations to eating different parts of the bamboo. Time was up for Ken Glander, and he and Dave Bamboo returned to the United States. We had captured important data on the Milnadrid Shafaka, but not on but not the bamboo lemurs, although we had discovered one of their secrets. As I said, goodbye to Ken and Dave. I could feel the breath of Bernard and the French on my back. Not long after their departure, Lorraine and I were back on the trail when we heard a crack ringing through the forest. Was it a hunter? No, it was followed by a creaking and groaning ending in a resonant crash. This was the sound of a giant tree falling. Nausea welled up in the pit of my stomach. From my experience in the Amazon, I knew very well what that sound portended. Timber exploiters had invaded this pristine rainforest. Lorraine and I walked further along the trail and saw a man dressed in rags, cutting up a huge piece of rosewood. Hard at work, he hardly looked at us. We heard another loud crack as a second tree began to fall. A 500-year-old tree was being felled by an axe by hand by one man. I asked Larray how much the man was being paid and gasped when I realized that such difficult work earned the equivalent of $1 a day. Larray also explained to me that his uncle, who knew all the trees in the forest, was in charge of hiring men from the surrounding villages to cut down timber as he told me this, we heard the sounds of cutting to our west. From that day on, every morning we saw men in tattered clothes moving their axes into the forest. Later, these same men would trudge out of the forest, each carrying a log over a foot in diameter on his shoulder. The wood would be trucked to a port and then shipped to Europe to be made into fine furniture and guitars. I was outraged that the villagers received only a dollar a day to cut down a tree that took half a millennium to grow. I was livid that this beautiful forest that housed my lemurs was being decimated in front of me, and I didn't know what to do. Go to Tana. Go to Tana Narivo, the Departement de la Forêt, the minister in charge of forests, Loray suggested. He was right. I had to get to the root of the problem. I needed to go to the government ministry and discuss the exploitation with its director. Even if I beat Bernard, even if I managed to describe a new species, it wouldn't matter because the forest would be gone and the lemurs with it. Before I left for Tana, I met Bernard on the trail. He too had noticed the loggers. I cannot believe the trees are being cut down. It's like a massacre. Bernard's voice quivered with emotion. I thought to myself that Deborah had been right when she observed that Bernard meant well. I told him my plan to appeal to the director of the Department of Water and Forest. Thank you, Patricia. Thank you for all our, you are doing for our lemurs. Bernard paused. 
Actually, I have been wanting to talk to you. I want to tell you that we have obtained blood samples from all three species of bamboo lemur. Professor Rampler is doing the genetics in his laboratory in France, and we are writing the paper describing the new species now. My heart sank. My worst fears were happening. Patricia, Bernard's voice became intimate, as if he was going to propose marriage. We want to invite you to add your information to the paper and to be an author. It will be a much stronger paper if you include your behavior and ranging data. I was speechless. We shouldn't be fighting over these lemurs, especially with what is happening to their habitat. I almost hugged Bernard, thought better of it, and instead extended my hand. Thank you, Bernard. Thank you for including me on the paper. In a paper entitled, A New Species of Hapolemur Primates from Southeast Madagascar, that came out in the journal Folio Primatological in 1987, we named the new lemur Hapolemur aureus, the golden bamboo lemur, the gold from the forest, a worthy name for this treasure. During the long, bumpy trip to Tana, I rehearsed what I was going to say to the director of ministry of the Ministry of Water and Forest. Should I appeal to a sense of national pride, or would he be offended and kick me out of the country? I recall how it was unwise to get involved in Madagascar's politics. Once in Tana, I met with Joel Ratsarason, the chief of flora and fauna at the Ministry of Water and Forest, who would serve as my translator. A secretary let me pass, uh, led me past a red leather door padded deep enough to swallow bullets. In the dark room behind a gigantic wooden desk sat a small man with sunglasses on. A huge map of Madagascar hung on the wall behind him. Like a mafia lord, he motioned for us to take a seat. And French Joel introduced me. This is Dr. Patricia Wright, from Duke University, who has come to Madagascar to study lemurs. She has been doing research in the forest near Ranamafan in the province of Fianaransu. Also in French, the director replied, Dr. Wright, we are pleased that you have come to do research in our country. I have never been to the United States, but I have friends who visited there long ago. I was reminded that this country had cut diplomatic relations with all countries except China, the Soviet Union, and North Korea. What have you come to talk with me about today? He looked up at me, but his eyes were obscured by the dark glasses. My team and I have discovered a new species of lemur, I said through my interpreter, the golden bamboo lemur, and we have rediscovered a species of lemur we thought was extinct, the greater bamboo lemur. This is a great honor for your country. This is very good news indeed, the director allowed. But there is a problem. I slowly approached my agenda. The forest where these lemurs live is being cut down for timber. This might be the only place in Madagascar, the only place in the world where they live. The director didn't say anything for a minute, and I began to worry. Then he spoke matter-of-factly. The trees that are being cut down are rosewood and palisandra. Since your lemurs eat bamboo, there should be no problem. Yes, yes, this is true. But as the trees fall, they destroy many others. The next step is that the villagers will slash and burn the remainder of the forest. The director nodded. The loggers have legal timber concessions. 
of about 750 and 17,000 acres each. They have papers to cut all precious hardwoods bigger than 8 inches in diameter. There's nothing illegal going on. The papers were issued before we knew about the new species of lemurs. The lemurs should be the priority now. And, and, and if, <laughs> if that doesn't happen, then, then they'll go extinct. I tried to sound as reasonable as possible. This man had made his career cutting down forests, and I was not very optimistic. To my surprise, he said, Well, I suppose we could make this forest a national park. There are only two national parks in all of Madagascar right now. This could be the third. My heartbeat quickened at this glimmer of hope. But a national park is expensive. We have to walk around the perimeter, which would take many months. We have to survey and map it. But if you can raise the money, I promise that my department and I will support this project. He finally removed his glasses and looked at me. If you raise the money. At first I was stunned. My thoughts going fast forward. I was a primatologist, not a fundraiser. This would require millions of dollars in grant money. I was a visiting assistant professor, a researcher young in my career. I was not trained to establish a national park, but I had no choice. I said to the director of Water and Forest, thank you for this opportunity. I will raise the necessary funds for this national park. And at that moment, I became a fundraiser and a conservationist as well as a scientist. Hey, Kara. How are you doing? I am great. You are great. I feel like that's the most sarcastic great I have heard. Oh, life and is maybe good. the last two hours. You know, we fill our lives with all these things that we wanted to do with our lives. They just can be a little tiring. That's all. A little. Just a little. little. Today, you have me at quite the disadvantage since the guest is actually with you all at Alabama giving a talk and meeting with everybody. Yeah, so today's guest is Dr. Patricia Wright. She is a professor of anthropology at SUNY Stony Brook. She's worked all over the world. She has taught at Duke. She's currently teaching at Stony Brook. She's worked in South America. Uh, I was just going through your, your bio, Borneo, many other places. Uh, currently has a major site for the last 30 years in Madagascar and lots of words that I'm going to add back into this podcast later to do a proper introduction. I'm doing fine. It's my first time to Alabama, so it's all brand new to me. It's a beautiful state, lots of trees, and I hear it's the most biodiverse state in all of the Union, so I'm, I'm looking huh. forward to coming back when I can go out in the forest and see some of your biodiversity. I did, did not know that. That's great. It's our. Yeah. It's it's on our um our state website. I was going to say, is it the state motto? We are the most biodiverse. <laughs> so I'm not sure if we're number one anymore or we ever were, but we're definitely in the top few states. And this came up 
in the Evolution for Everyone class that I teach, which Pat was kind enough to sit in on this morning. And many of our students who now, as you may have noticed, Pat, are largely from outside of Alabama. So the fact that that they were aware of that mm-hmm. uh, impressed me. But that is one of the, the mentions that they had. I know you have been talking a lot today, and you were really, really kind to my students by giving us your origin story. And it's a really, really, really fascinating story. And I'm not going to ask you to go back through the whole story, but I am going to tell our listeners that they can read it in, you have two books. One is High Moon Over the Amazon, My Quest to Understand the Monkeys of the Night, which details much of the story you told us this morning, I suspect. Yes, it does. And your other book is For the Love of Lemurs, My Life in the Wilds of Madagascar. So if you don't mind, I want to summarize really quickly for Kara and our listeners some of what you told, and then you can you can jump in with some of the highlights that I missed, and then I'd like to hear where that story continued. So Pat started off as an undergrad studying biology, but there wasn't a lot of work after she graduated and she ended up becoming a social worker and she got married and I'm not going to do it justice because it was such a good story but some of the highlights for me was they were hanging out going to rock shows at the Fillmore East in the East Village of New York so this is the 60s this is the height of the Fillmore East but suffice it to say she saw everybody who was anybody, late 60s. Pet store across the street from the Fillmore East had an owl monkey for sale that she bought and that was her pet in her apartment, but it's a, it's a primate. So when they would go to these shows, owl monkey, like any smart animal, got pissed off because it was being left alone and wrecked their house. So she wanted to get a mate for the owl monkey and basically went to Columbia and found one of these really sketchy animal dealers. (laughs) This was late 60s, early 70s, remember, and got a mate for her owl monkey. And they ended up breeding. They had babies. So she was basically observing owl monkey mating and behavior in her apartment and wanted to know and saw the paternal care that her male owl monkey demonstrated and realized there was nothing in the literature about the evolution of paternal care in primates. She was a social worker, but also... Yeah, I have a question about that. Because you're a social worker, what, where did the familiarity with paternal care come from to know that it wasn't in the literature from primates. Well, see, on the side, I was going to the New York Public Library, which in those days, you know, we didn't have internet, and there wasn't a lot of ways that if you were not in the academic system that you could actually find literature. So, you know, as far as I knew from anything that I'd ever, and I watched TV, I knew about Jane Goodall, I knew about uh, also the baboons because there was a uh, there was a book the territorial imperative came out and that was about uh, it's a popular book about baboon behavior basically and, and and there were other books too and so there it was a you know it was kind of known in the popular press that females took care of the babies and, mm-hmm. and everything and males just strutted around and and 
attacked other males. So it was, <laughs> it was a total surprise for me. And I realized, because this was, you know, by this time, it was close to the 70s. It was the beginning of the 70s. And, you know, we were just starting this kind of sexual revolution mm -hmm. where girls didn't have to stay home and watch the households anymore. And I thought that this was a very important find, uh, thing to discover why this extreme form of paternal care had evolved and a tiny little monkey in the Amazon. Hmm. Uh, it was, you know, the, the father did everything. I mean, the mother gave milk because they're mammals, but the father played with the offspring, fed him new food, you know, taught him which foods to eat and carried him on his back um, throughout the whole time that the infant is baby and through the juvenile period, very close to the father. So uh, that's, that, that was what I thought was important for us all to know how that happened and why that mm -hmm. happened and that it did happen in our primate cousins was especially important in those days. It was partially because I too was a mother mm -hmm. and I was doing all the care because males in those days didn't do uh, very much care at all. They didn't, they went to, off to work and they left the wife with the kids. Mm -hmm. Her daughter and the owl monkey baby were born at the same time. And then two, weeks two weeks apart. Yeah, the, my daughter was born first. The monkey daughter was born two weeks later, and that's that's amazing in itself because we had no idea that the monkeys were uh, pregnant. So that started a a quest on, and that led to my PhD, and then from my PhD onward. So I finally got out of the Amazon rainforest with all these data about the world's only nocturnal monkey and about male parental care and about the natural forces that supported that this one kind of monkey was, was nocturnal. That in itself is pretty strange. There aren't any other nocturnal monkeys anywhere in the world except for this, this uh, group. And so I got back and it was snowing. I remember I was near Buffalo and it was snowing. It was snowing a lot. And I had just been in the Amazon for two years. And then suddenly I got a, a telephone call that surprised me because it was the director of the Duke University Primate Center. And he was basically called to offer me a job. Hmm. He said that he had an NSF grant and that uh, he to study tarsiers. And he had sent five men to Borneo. And Borneo, you know, it's a long way away. And I'd always uh, read about Borneo and never been there. He said he'd sent five men to Borneo to bring back tarsiers. Nobody had even brought back one. He was supposed to bring back 12, according to his NSF grant. He heard that I would be able to do that for him. Hmm. And so the rumor was out that I traveled with uh, all monkeys of nocturnal primates and that I, I actually did some amazing things. So, so he was offering me a job and I went to my, to my thesis advisor and I said, I haven't even started writing. I haven't even started analyzing the data. And he said, Duke is a really good place. Well, you should get that job. <laughs> and so um, I did. I was in Borneo within three months. I brought back 12 tars here. <laughs> then he said, go back. We want another species. <laughs> then I went to the Philippines, brought back another 12. And so then he had enough so that, you know, I could study uh, these animals and look at their behavior. I eventually did get my dissertation done. Probably <laughs> <laughs> a couple years later than I would have, but I got it. And so then he called me into his office. And this, I'm going to tell the story tonight. And then he said, this painting on the wall, this was done a long time ago in the 1800s and it's a it's a bamboo lemur and we think it's extinct on Madagascar but we don't know for sure could you go back over there go to Madagascar 
and uh, and tell us whether this animal is extinct. And I, I, you know, what can I say? So I'd never been to Madagascar. I thought, okay, I didn't know anything about it until I got there because they didn't give me a lot of detail. I get there and there's, you know, everybody's walking. There are no roads. It was really very different in Madagascar than I see today. And uh, so we ended up getting a car over there and eventually I not only found that species, but also found a new species to science, the golden bamboo lemur. Hmm. And just as we saw that, found that, and I was busily doing my research on the comparisons of them and the other lemurs in that forest, the timber exporters came in and started to chop down the forest. So I cried a little bit and I yelled at a few people that were carrying the wood. And then finally I realized that was futile. And so I went to the Capitol and talked to the ministry. And then he said, well, Mrs. Wright, I think you're right that, you know, these new species that we've just discovered and this beautiful forest is worth protecting, but we don't have any money. We're in Madagascar. We do not have any money for making the maps, for doing the boundaries, for training the people to protect it, to doing the infrastructure. So instead, uh, instead, why don't you find the money, and then we'll be very happy to help you make that forest a national park. I was an assistant professor, and when he said that, I just, my mouth fell open. He directed me outside of his office and said, we'll be glad to help, and slammed the door. And I thought, oh my God, what do I do? I mean, for me to be raising millions and millions of dollars, you know, I'm just an assistant professor, I mean, that's that's how it seemed impossible. And making a national park. I mean, I had no training in making a national park in graduate school. And then I thought, oh no, I'll never get tenure <laughs> if I start doing things like that. And then I realized that if I didn't do this, that my species that I had just discovered was going to go extinct. And I couldn't live with myself if that happened. Huh. So I made a decision right there that I was going to have to I was going to have to protect that forest. And so I spent the next between that was 1986 until we actually received four million dollars from USAID in 1990, and uh, that was to do the the structure of the park. But during the time that during all that time, I was visiting villages around the park to ask them about uh, the kind of assistance that they needed. Right. I knew nothing about development. I was really, truly asking them, what should we we do? And so it was never a top-down thing. It was like, I have a problem and you have a, you know, let's work together and let's make this happen to the advantage of everybody. And, um, and now I can say 30 years later that this kind of integrated approach to conservation, which was not done at that time, but working uh, with the villagers, uh, helping their, with their health care, helping with their schooling, helping with their economic improvement, all of those things, working together as partners rather than top-down, and, uh, and working together with teaching them the value of their extraordinary biodiversity is so rather a success story. But I had no idea at any of these stages that it was really going to work. I was always worried and always getting more money to make things happen. And uh, eventually, um, it was uh, in, in 1991, it became a national park. In 2007, it became a World Heritage Site. We have 137 staff that work for the research team full-time with benefits. 
then there's another hundred uh, tourism guides who make more money than my people. They don't get health benefits. Mm. And then uh, we also have the National Park Service itself, which is another hundred people. But then for the tourism industry, we have used to have one hotel in town. Now we've got 38, and then that's uh, you know that brings in income for handicrafts and everything. So the this little poverty-stricken place is a much more it's much more prosperous and everybody's protecting the lemurs. Now, I'm not saying that this works everywhere in Madagascar, but it's worked pretty well in our, our place. Yeah, it was, it was striking when I visited in was March 2017. It was like entering in sort of an idyllic community because the contrast between Antananarivo and the rest and the whole way down there and Ranamafana was dramatic. And obviously we hadn't met and I had no preconceptions of what to expect. I wasn't familiar with Ranamafana until some of my primatology colleagues, knowing I was going to Madagascar, suggested I go. And uh, Josia Razafindramanana, who I was working with, set up the trip for me. And walking into the village of Ranamafana, I think one of the first places I visited was a, a silk co-op where they were doing silk handicrafts and they were telling me about the relationship between the village and the community and the park and I was really blown away and then when I saw the research facilities <laughs> it was the only place in all of Madagascar I found was really dependable internet so <laughs> folks would <laughs> spend a lot of time there it's truly, in my own opinion, you know, which is admittedly limited, a world-class facility. And, and so I wonder what the reception beyond the local has been for that. It's been interesting. The national government looks at it as their crown jewel, and that's really nice. And the Minister of the Environment came and gave us a speech when it was like the 25th anniversary of the park. He gave us a speech and said, I just wish we could uh, copy this model and have six more of these. Yeah. And I thought, wow, that's really nice of him. Yeah. With television cameras, you know, rolling and everything happening. So it made, it made me very happy to see that the, the government itself was acknowledging this. And of course, the world is acknowledging it too. We're now having, we had the International Primatological Society uh, group come. We had the International Lepidopterist, uh, actually it's the African Lepidopterist Society came last year in April. And um, as we began this year, the American, uh, the Association for Tropical Biology and Conservation is sending some of their delegates down to our research station. So it's very nice that we're getting the kind of recognition we're building and we're constructing a museum and we're gonna have collections of insects and, and plants. And so uh, soon we'll be, our, our building will be filled with Cornell cabinets for the insects and, and we'll have a beautiful herbarium and it'll be a great place for people from all over the world to come to look at Madagascar's biodiversity and, and for the universities in Madagascar to be very, very proud of because we're yeah. in affiliation with the University of Fiatransu and uh, and Tananarivo. I had a lot of conversations with the University of Tananarivo about the needs that they have 
And one of the, the reasons that I was there was because I have a winter grin to do a cultural exchange with an outreach program we have here in Tuscaloosa with a Montessori elementary slash middle. I mean, they're doing basically six years old through 18 year old education there in Tana and have so few resources. They were taking anyone with a bachelor's degree from anywhere in the world to come in and teach. And I saw, similar to what your explanation for why you decided I needed to do this, regardless of my tenure prospects, because it's the right thing to do, I saw the resources that we have relative to what they have behooves us, behooves me to try to help because we have so much. And the outreach programs that Center Val Bio is doing were really impressive to me too. It seems like there's just really, really well-developed programs that you guys are implementing. And I wonder if you can just tell us a little bit, and I'll, I'll interrupt this really quickly to say, Kara texted me, her internet just totally dropped out. So she wanted to apologize. So I say us with finger quotes, but she'll listen to this. If you could tell us more about those education programs that you you guys have going on there and how they developed and, and what you're doing. Yes, our education developed a little bit at a time. We started out with building schools um, because that's what they said that they needed. And then they said, oh, now I got a school. We don't have any teachers. <laughs> and so then we went, I went to the minister of uh, education and said, send your best teachers down to Ranmapan which was good because I had enough influence to do that. Mm. And that was, you know, we're talking the 90s and the, and the, just the beginning of the, of the 2000s. And then I realized that our schools were all on, and our first schools were all on the road. And we had our programs all on the road. And we did conservation education kind of programs. So we needed off-road school, schooling. Because there's so, one road, right? Basically. Yeah, there's one road. And, you know, most of the Malagas, they walk everywhere. So you can walk two days on either side of that road and you'll have schools and they're not getting very good education. So I got a granting from the Three Graces Foundation to start with fourth and fifth graders and to do uh, participatory science, to do critical thinking. This is like unknown and unheard of in Madagascar because everybody just, the teacher goes up and writes on the board, everybody writes in their little notebooks, whatever the teacher writes. But this was a whole different thing where you're actually doing things, participating. And, you know, doing things like counting how much firewood that your parents uh, use and figuring out how many trees that that would take if you continue to eat rice for a year. Like doing things like, well, planting gardens and and planting trees, endemic species of trees, and measuring how much they grow. And actually having some of those uh, seedlings get lots of water and others get a little bit of water, some get more sun, others get more shade. So they begin to see uh, that it makes a difference if you water something or not. Um, and this is like revolutionary for kids. And, and kids going out in their backyard and seeing that there's little tiny mouse lemurs there and actually following those little lemurs that can fit in the palm of your hand and to see what they're eating and to just get interested in and listen to the bird calls and record them and then call them, you know, play them back and listen. And it's, uh, you know, we started getting the kids really into science and then we took them on trips into the forest. And there's nothing better than going into a forest for all of us and just, just experience the calm and the beauty 
and the sounds and the smells. And that's what's going to get somebody to value their resources more than anything. And a lot of kids don't go to school. So in addition to the school programs, we also have conservation clubs. Conservation clubs, you can be 30 and still come to a conservation club, but mostly it's teenagers. And they do things, again, like a lot of tree planting and and a lot lot of uh, the kind of community projects to clean things up and recycling and and, uh, fresh water kinds of projects. Those are important projects for them. So get them involved, get them to value their natural resources. So that's the kind of education that we we try to do. But the health team is also very important because people are sick there. Um, You know, one... Each person has three or four different kinds of parasites and different sicknesses. So we started out with a health team very early on. And now we have one medical doctor and uh, three nurses and a social worker uh, that go out to the remote villages, you know, and you have to walk two days. And they bring a tent. They bring this huge tent and they set it up as a doctor's office. And then everybody comes in. They make a line and people come in one at a time. They have the privacy bring in all the medications it's a hilarious to see there's a whole line of people carrying medications on their head and boxes in tupperware boxes and uh and the medical doctor you know can cure whatever else you and they and they uh, do that they're out uh in the field almost more than half their time hmm. uh, and that's that's something that the people can count on and it's really saved a lot of lives but also builds us the trust that yeah. we need from the villages, so that's important. And then we try to touch their heart because I think, you know, all the preaching about the value of biodiversity, all the preaching about don't cut down the forest don't really do much good. But if you convince people and they believe it in their hearts, that's really different. And how do you do that? Well, mostly like you do it here, through music, through dance, through, you know, plays. And, and so we have we have special environmental bands. We have a contest. We have a festival, mm-hmm. music festival. We bring all the bands together, and then we have first, second, and third prize every year. And when they, you know, whenever you have music, you got people coming. So a lot of people will come to hear the music, the local people do the music. Wow. And then um, sometimes we bring down pop stars from Tana, uh, because we got those two, and then that adds a different kind of prestige to the festival. But I think environmental arts, you know, teaching kids that they can draw what they see, and that they, you know, we bring materials and everything. I think that's also an important part of it. But the most important part, of course, is bringing kids into the forest and getting them to love nature. I'm really impressed hearing your story earlier. You basically followed your own interests despite or before you had graduate training, you were interested in primates, you were interested in animals, you went out and found funding and figured out how to do it on your own, you know, using your your wits. And it sounds like this is the kind of critical thinking you're instilling in these kids and in this community, right? Like really connecting them to what they see around them. And I wonder who modeled this behavior for you? Where did you find this in yourself? Well, first of all, I think it, it was partially my, my dad, who was a Canadian, and he was a hunter and a fisherman, and took me on expeditions to the wilderness of Canada, even when I was like five. So I, you know, I had that background. And then pretty soon I learned how to read. 
And that's what I learned about the tropics. And I read Gerald Durrell and Ivan Sanderson and all these people that, that brought the rainforest to me. And so I never thought I'd ever be able to go to those places. But just to read about the incredible tropical animals and all that they do, that's just, you know, that was what I did when I was 12 and 13. And then finally, I had this incredible opportunity. And when I went to university, I majored in biology, but there was no tropical biology. If there was tropical biology, I didn't hear about it. And so that's why it took me a kind of circuitous route. But now kids can just go on my study abroad and they can go to Madagascar. Yeah. (laughs) it's a lot easier nowadays. Well, it is, but I, I really, I won't belabor the point, but I just, I love your narrative of so-and-so said I couldn't do it for this, that, or the other reason. And you were just like, you know, I'm just going to do it anyway, or I'm just going to figure out a way to do it. Because it's been something I try to instill in students as well. That we hear quite often, like, Someone told me I couldn't do it or it would be near impossible. So you kind of said, screw them. I'm going to try anyway. Yeah. It's not easy. You know, you really have to meet that challenge and you're going to be, it's going to be beaten back in many, many different ways. You know, it's like, I don't think people can really appreciate how many uh, blockages that could be thrown in your path. Part of my success was I would stop and think, okay, uh, we're going to get around this boulder. <laughs> got to get it, got to get on the other side some other way, I guess. And I think uh, sometimes students seem to think that things are impossible and not be willing to say, well, maybe they're impossible for some people, but not for me. Just to reiterate, you went and studied a nocturnal monkey before you ever even had any graduate training when you were told that no one could actually find a nocturnal monkey in the dark none of the experts could. You went to Borneo and found tarsiers when the so-called experts ahead of you could not go and find any and bring them back. And you went to Madagascar and found a monkey, a lemur thought extinct, found another one people didn't know about and started a national park in a developing country with no resources. (laughs) That is a tall order. Did I I miss anything? Well, recently, recently I just found a lost rainforest. Which you're going to be telling us about tonight. I do have one question. What ended up happening to the owl monkeys that you had at home? What's their end story? Okay. So, you know, I got a MacArthur Genius Award, and that was pretty wonderful. And I built them a palace in my backyard. I was in North Carolina. And so it was like, you know, they could be outside. So I had this huge cage, you know, trees inside it and everything. And they had a really nice life. And then uh, when I came to New York, you know, the weather's a little bit different in New York. And I couldn't really had a kind of house, a small house, but it was like very open and modern kind of house. So I got some uh, of my friends who lived in Santa Barbara to take my monkeys for me. And now, of course, it's many, many years later and the original monkeys have gone. Mm. And uh, even their children are getting, uh, I, I think most of them are gone too. So we're on our third generation. I miss them every day. And it's, it's hard to live without animals, but I do so much traveling. I've been in Madagascar more than half the time. So I wow. have to, I'm very happy to have uh, my animals be in the wild. And by the way, I should say, please, that people should not buy pet monkeys. Mm. Because, you know, they're really not really very good pets. And uh, it's really cruel and it encourages people to t- extract them from the wild. Yeah. And I found that out the hard way by going to the Amazon and seeing 
the uh, the beginning of the pet trade. So I, I'm totally against that for anybody now. I want to ask a follow-up to the status of the lemurs in Ranamafana. So 2013 chapter that you wrote in for Primate Tourism, a tool for conservation, you questioned the impact that tourism was having on the well-beings of the lemurs. There were some charts showing that the, the group sizes were dropping as the number of tourists coming to the park increased year by year. And I wonder what the status of them is now. Do you still see that trend? Well, it was very interesting because that was the data that we were taking, let's say, from 2009, 10, 11. And we did see that dip. But what's happened since that time is very interesting. The Shavakas have returned pretty much to what they were before that time. And uh, the golden bamboo lemurs have tripled their population density. They've just Mm. taken off. And that's really great. The brown lemurs and the red-bellied lemurs are pretty much maintaining their population. So there is a difference in... Some species are doing better than others, but that incredible dip that we did have in almost all the species in uh, 2008, 9, 10, 11, they have recuperated. Those animals are resilient and they can can, can come back if you protect the habitat. Sure. And that's the whole thing. You know, lemurs and most animals are resilient. They have uh, the habitat to live in and the food that they need to grow and reproduce. So I think that um, part of the reason, part of the reason why they have recuperated is because of the management of the tourism. We discussed these findings with the National Park and the National Park started to limit the number of tourists that could watch the lemurs. Mm. So it's not perfect. There are some months like October when there's a tremendous amount of tourists. So most of the time we have a limited number of tourists underneath the animals and so that's also a change so when we're talking about tourism as the silver bullet so to speak managed tourism Mm. might be a tour a silver bullet i mean you know that if you go see gorillas it's a thousand five hundred dollars for one hour with the gorillas the mountain gorillas that's a lot of money and people are paying it in there and you have to reserve a year in advance Mm. to like broaden out and you've touched on it now just a bit Given your wide-ranging experience and, of course, investment in conservation, kind of what is your outlook on primate conservation and from the lessons you learned, what might be able to be applied more broadly across the planet for primates? Oh, yes. We've learned a lot. We've made a lot of mistakes. We don't talk about those so much, but (laughs) we, we know that we've made a lot of mistakes. And one of the most important things, I think, is to is to involve the local communities, no matter where you are. And I think we biologists in general have done a really poor job of marketing, Mm. of of really showing how extraordinary the wildlife on this planet is, how interesting it is. And so that people aren't just going to the cultural capitals, aren't just going to the Sistine Chapel or the Tower of London, but that they're they're also uh, valuing. Uh, the wildlife in, in the natural parks as much as they do the more cultural things that they target, tourism focus and targets. I think that's important. I think it's important to involve everybody in nature, get them outside and get them outside seeing these little bugs and things. So I think if the more scientists that will give outreach to the public, the better. I think we have to concentrate on marketing online better 
I would like to turn on my television and have have uh, you know the news of the uh, nature news that where you really hear about what's going on with all of us scientists. I mean, we're discovering new species every day. I mean, we're doing extraordinary things. Nobody, all we hear about is the wars and people to people kind of uh, news. Let's hear about wildlife and people together. So I think um, marketing is important. I think it's important to involve communities, involve as many people so that they feel that they're part of it. I'd like to take the model of doing, you know, health education, outreach, everything together with the wildlife. But the one thing that I really believe is science has to be the center, that you really have to have rigorous science gets you the right answers. It's just fine to publicize that science, but you have to be sure that we still have those scientists to getting, getting the facts straight. So I... Uh, optimistic that we're heading in the right direction. I think uh, we have the Al in Stony Brook, we have the Allen mm -hmm. Alder Center, and it actually teaches scientists to communicate science better. And I was uh, a student of one of those workshops and met him. Oh, <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, congratulations. And all my students have to attend them too. And so I think we're seeing a trend that's getting, it, getting better. We need, of course, to amplify what we're doing now mm -hmm. to make a better world. Um, the problems that we're having with the world changing due to anthro, what do they call it, the Anthropocene, that with the, all humans really changing the planet. We have to counter that with some resiliency. We have to plant trees, build forests back again. Not just say, oh my goodness, we're losing all those forests, but go out there and take those forests back, plant trees, plant endemic species, mm. and encourage the biodiversity to return to them. Madagascar is on the brink of extinction, but every place on this planet is going to be on the brink of extinction soon. So we need to use uh, Madagascar as an example. If we don't say what's going on in Madagascar, all of that incredible biodiversity is going to be gone, and it's going to be gone pretty quick. Mm. I feel very strongly about that we don't have time to just twiddle our thumbs, as they say. We have to be activists. Are you hopeful? Yeah, sure. I'm an optimist and I work very hard every day because I believe that we can do that. But we need more than me and more than just me and my students. Everybody has to take action. Mm. Maybe it'll be little things, but you know, I think it should be big things. I think we should have like a Peace Corps, but it should be a Planet Corps mm. where we can really get out there and repair our planet. Get those, mm. that next generation repairing our planet. That's, That's what we great. need. Great idea. You sound like you're all work and no play, but I hear you just got married. Yes, I did. So congrats. congrats. I did. Congratulations. Marry a private intelligence, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, we always ask our guests how folks maintain balance in their life. So do you have hobbies or watch television, read books, listen to music? What do you do to give yourself balance? Well, you know, there's a lot of plane trips in my life. <laughs> so that's when I get a chance to, um, you know, read books and, and see films. I love films. And, you know, we went in, in Island of Lemurs, Madagascar, actually making a film and actually mm. walking down the red carpet with Morgan Freeman. That was fun, actually. That's cool. <laughs> Spending days with uh, Anthony Bourdain, that was fun. Oh my goodness. Uh, and music, music is still one of my passions. Still going to rock shows? 
Yeah, sure. <laughs> They're too big now, you know, you got small ones. You know, so there's a lot of things that I, I really like to do. I do, my daughter grew up and is doing well, and I have grandchildren to spend time with. Mm. So I really enjoy like taking them on trips to show them uh, monkeys and lemurs and uh, wild places all over the world. Well, that's great. If people want to learn more about you or get in touch via social media, uh, what's the best way to do that? Okay, so I think our website is centervalbio.org, and Centervalbio is the name of our research station. We're on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, etc. So it's pretty much Centervalbio. All right, well, thank you for being on the show. I'm looking forward to the talk tonight. Thank you so much, Pat.